creature, a new creation. And it, it changed everything about me. I was a slave who had been set free by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the strongest defenses for my faith was my changed life. I went back to high school my junior year, a changed guy. And I've got, by the grace of God, I went to high school in Tennessee. And there are people in this congregation who I went to high school with who could testify to that. I was not perfect. I was a screw-up. I was a junior in high school. But I was, when I screwed up, I was the first one to repent and to ask forgiveness for what I had done. I wasn't afraid of being a screw-up anymore. I understood that the grace of God would cover that. One of the, one of the first things I did uh, once, I, once I began following Christ was a big long list of names came up in my head of people I needed to call and I needed to ask forgiveness of because I had just treated them wrongly. I'd sinned against them. And these were weighing on my conscience. And uh, one of those people was an ex-girlfriend of mine. I called her up. I said, I've got to tell you what happened to me over the summer. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ now. He has changed my life and he has freed me and he has given me hope and he's given me purpose. And what I'm reading from the Bible has come to life to me now and it's changing me. And one of the things that has shown me is what a fool I was and how I treated you. I treated you like an object. And God loves you like he, as much as he loves his own son, giving his son for you. And I'm a fool and I need to ask your forgiveness. And she said, you're not going to believe this. I accepted Christ this summer too. In Colorado. I said, you're ama- it's amazing. Long story short, we now have four kids. <laughs> so what, what is Cresswellian joy? It's the joy that I live in Every day, as I set my heart and my mind on things that are above, things that are pure, things that are worthy of praise, as I remember my story of how God has saved a hormonal, unconfident, unstable, peer pressured young sophomore in high school through the death and resurrection of his son, and how he continues to conform me into the image of his son. Now you know the details of Cresswellian joy. You, you have a very broad definition of it, but the fact is, is that many of you probably already had a bit of a definition. You've been here long enough to where you could have answered that question. You had an explanation that you could have given that church member because you've observed me over time. Well, today, what, what I want to talk about We're going to step out of the book of Matthew for Sunday and look at the word of God and what it tells us about the the visible, expressive attributes of our worship. What what physical expressions of worship delight the heart of God? What What things can we do as we worship him that please him, that he has given us in his word? So as we do that, I think it would be Surely advantageous for us to pray and ask God to lead us in this effort. Would you bow with me? God, be faithful to your word. Be gracious in allowing me to step out of the way and allowing your spirit to teach us from your word. God, give us grace to not just be hearers, but to be doers as well. And so be the living testimony of Christ here on earth. Spirit, as you live and abide in your church, give us grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you want to turn to Psalm 108, mainly going to be looking at verse 1. And we're going to be all over the Psalms. And all over the Bible for that matter. But, uh, but we're going to really hone in on Psalm 108 and allow it to guide us as we, as we look at, at this together. So Psalm 108 verse 1 
says this, my heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and I will make melody with my whole being. God delighting worship begins with the heart, a steadfast heart, and it works its way out. So I know you, you may have heard this phrase come up in conversation. You're talking with someone and someone says, Jeff Doyle is a real worshiper. Or, or you know, Larry Trotter, he's a real worshiper. What does that mean? What does it mean when someone says, when someone makes a statement like that? What they're primarily saying is, those people are expressive in their worship. When someone says, uh, Carolina Kavanaugh is, is a real worshiper, what they, what they typically mean is, she's expressive when she worships. But is that, is that the canon, is that the measuring stick by which we measure what a real worshiper is? Look at... Uh, 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Matthew chapter 15. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Outward expressiveness is not first and foremost in the mind of God. It starts with a steadfast heart. We also see this expressed in the New Testament. I mean, even people outside the church know what the Pharisees and the Sadducees are and what they represent. Look at Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." External expression void of internal change leads to eternal death. Let me say that one more time. External expression void of internal change leads to eternal death. It's, it's hypocritical. It's belittling. It's, it's belittling to God. It's as if to say, God's a child, and you're a clown. God's at his birthday party, and you're going to paint your face on, and you're going to do a dance, and God's going to be delighted with it. Galatians 6 is a stern warning. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. If you sow false worship, you will reap a false God, unable to save and unable to satisfy you. God is no child at a birthday party. He sees your heart. He knows it even better than you do. God delighting worship begins with the steadfast love of God. We cannot worship God rightly until our hearts have been ravished by the awesome love of God for us. Rob Craig, on his door in the office, has a quote from Bill Hybels that says this, People who consistently spread grace are those whose hearts have been ravished by it. Let's look at, let's look at one of my, This is probably, I'm just going to say it's my favorite psalm. The last time I preached, I preached this psalm. I love this psalm. And this psalm is sung from the heart of a man who's been ravished by God's love. David is in the desert. He's in the wilderness. He's being pursued by Absalom, his own son. He's pursuing him to, to kill him. 
Listen to what David's song says. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift my hands. Do you see the transformation in this singer? He is desperate for God. He is seeking God. And what happens? He beholds his power and his glory. And what happens from beholding his power and his glory? He sees his steadfast love and it is better than life. And it's from there, it's from that point that he sings and he lifts his hands in worship. Tim Keller in his book, The Prodigal God, gave this illustration, this story to illustrate a very good point. He said, The acclaimed foreign film, Three Seasons, is a series of vignettes about life in post-war Vietnam. One of the stories is about Hai, a cyclo driver. He's basically a rickshaw driver, bicycle. He drives bicycles around. And Lan, a beautiful prostitute. Both have deep, unfulfilled desires. High is in love with Lan. Lan lives in grinding poverty and longs to live in the beautiful world where she works, but in which she never spends the night. She hopes that the money she makes by prostitution will be her means of escape, but instead the work brutalizes and enslaves her. One day, High enters a rickshaw contest, cycling race, and he wins the top prize. With the money, he brings Lan to the hotel. He pays for the night and pays her fee. Then, to everyone's shock, he tells her he just wants to watch her fall asleep. Instead of using his power and his wealth to have her for the night, he spends it to purchase a place for her where for one night she can sleep in a normal world to fulfill her desire to belong. Lan finds such grace deeply troubling at first, thinking that uh, Hai has done this to control her. When it becomes apparent that he is using his power to serve rather than to use her, it begins to transform her making it impossible for her to return to a life of prostitution. And Tim Keller says this, similar, in a similar way, many Christians are transformed as we accept how Christ served and died for us while we were unworthy of his love. Why wouldn't you want to offer yourself to someone like this? Selfless love destroys mistrust in our hearts towards God. Land's heart is transformed. It's transformed and it leads to a transformation in her behavior. Worship that delights the heart of God starts on the inside and it works its way out. It begins with heart change and it moves towards life change. Let's look at the second half of Psalm 108, verse 1. Got a steadfast heart. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and I will make melody with all my being. I love the way that the message renders this. Listen, I'm ready. So ready. Ready from head to toe ready to sing, ready to raise a God song. Wake soul, wake lute, wake up you sleepyhead son. Man, isn't that good? Have you you ever been so ready? I have a feeling that there was 
there's probably several good illustrations of that from this past week in some of your households. We told our three sons, Jacob, Isaac, and Judson, that on Christmas morning, they were to wait until 7.30 to go downstairs because mom and dad wanted to be awake and wanted to see them go downstairs. And so as I'm tucking Jacob, my nine-year-old, to sleep, he says, Dad, can you go get my book? He's reading a book that's like that thick. It's downstairs. Can you put it on my desk? Because I'm going to wake up at five o'clock and I don't want to wake everyone else up. I said, I will gladly do that, son. Don't wake everyone else up. Well, what happened the next morning is something that I've never seen happen in our house before. About seven o'clock, Lindsay and I woke up to what sounded like war. Coming from our son's bedroom. And in fact, that's what it was. Our sons were so excited about getting up that all their toy guns and all their, all their toy ammo was downstairs. They had nothing to shoot each other with. <laughs> so they grabbed the nearest thing they could find, and that was their stuffed animals. That's Jacob. He's on the top bunk. He definitely has a superior position. Isaac's just really, he's done for. He's just. They were so ready, so ready, filled with anticipation, ready to go see what was waiting them downstairs. Please understand, that is not what every morning looks like in our house. This is unusual. Our bodies physically respond to things that affect our souls. If you read the meditation for preparation this week, you heard Stephen Miller give this illustration. When a young man meets a young woman and he wants to impress her, he stands up straight. Shoulders back, gut sucked in. He maintains eye contact and he smiles. When he wants to propose, he bows on one knee. When he has messed up royally, he needs two knees. If someone points a gun at you, you raise your hands and surrender. If your child wants you to hold them or lavish affection on them, they raise their arms. At sporting events, when your team scores, you jump in the air, pump your fists, and shout as loudly as you can. When the ref makes a bad call, you throw your hands up in frustration and boo vigorously. Your heart is caught up in the experience of the moment, which causes your body to respond outwardly. Heartfelt worship is meant to find its expression in your entire body. So what are the natural responses to the majesty of God Most High? What is your natural response to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, your Savior, who died for you and is living again? What do you do with that? Well, demonstrative worship is based off of revelation. It's based off of what we have discovered about God. One of my favorite examples in the entire Bible is found in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. God wins a battle for Judah while they sing. So I'm going to read the story and then I'll explain it to you. But Judah, Judah is being attacked by the Moabites and the Ammonites. And the word of the Lord comes to King Jehoshaphat through Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah. And this is what he hears. This is what the prophet says. You will not need to fight this battle. Stand firm. Hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them. 
and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of Kehoathites and the Korites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when, you, and when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. So this is what, this is the beautiful mercy of God to Judah. God says, Judah, These people are coming to kill you. I want you to trust me. Sing to me. Sing to me. And watch what happens. So Judah lines up. You got the Levites. You know, Jehoshaphat picks out his best singers, I guess. And they stand up there and they begin singing. And what does God do? He gives the Ammonites and the Moabites, these sinful people, he gives them up to their own contentiousness and sin. They turn on one another. These people who came together in order to go kill the people of God decide they don't like each other. Isn't that just the typical thing that sin does? So while Judah's singing to God, praises to God, their enemies are killing each other down in the valley. I love it. Notice Notice Judah's response to the revelation of the Lord that came through the prophet. Verse 18, they bowed down while the Levites stood up to praise the Lord. Their body's natural response to the word of the Lord and them trusting in it was an expression of worship physically. You see this all over the scripture. We just saw it at Christmas When the Magi come and bring frankincense, gold, and myrrh, these Gentiles, these guys who are not God's people, what do they do? They bow down in worship. Ezekiel, Moses, and Paul all cover their faces when God encounters them. It's a natural reaction. They cover their faces. The book of Revelation, John, one of Jesus' own disciples, gets this tour of heaven by an angel. The end of the tour, he bows down and worships the angel. Even wrong worship has a physical response to it. The angel rebukes John and says, what are you doing? You just saw God sitting on his throne. Don't fall before me. But that was John's physical response. In worship, he bowed down. His body had to respond. So let's look. Let's look at some biblical examples of worship throughout the Psalms. And uh, let's think about them and what they're saying to us. Singing. Psalm 147. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant. A song of praise is fitting. Bob Coughlin in his book, Worship Matters, says, Vibrant singing enables us to combine truth about God seamlessly with passion for God, doctrine and devotion, mind and heart. The gospel is a story. It's been handed down to us through the revelation of Scripture, the text of the Bible. When we sing, we are able to take the greatest news ever given to man and engage our emotions with it. We do more than just speak words. 
We give life to words through the rise and fall of the pitch of our voices. I'll just give you an example. And I'm, I want, I'm, going to, I'm going to give it justice. I'm not a public poet speaker. But I'm going, to, I'm going to give you the text of this song as poetically as I can without singing it. Oh Lord my God. When I an awesome wonder. Consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars and I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe is displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art. How great thou art. Which you like better, that? Or then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. When I came in this morning, I had a lot on my plate and very little sleep. And I had just sat beside my wife in the ER for a number of hours with what could possibly have been something that could have caused her to die right in front of me as we were sitting there. I came in and the worship team began leading and they began singing. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. And I knew that. I knew that before we came in this morning. I knew that truth, but for it to engage my heart in this moment, when I, when I was forgetting to trust in it and to believe in it, that's, that, was, that was all I could do. And so, so I wept through most of the first service. It was just, I didn't mean to cry. Like I'm not meaning to cry now. It's what happens. It's your body's physical response to this merciful news that God's given us. Larry warned me not to quote Jonathan Edwards because he's kind of bulky. But I think that you guys are intelligent. And I love this quote. He said, He said, the duty of singing praises to God seems to be given wholly to excite and to express religious affections. There is no other reason why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose and with music, except that these things have a tendency to move our affections. John Wesley, John Wesley wrote instructions to his worship team on how they were to sing. And I'm just going to take them, and I'm at, this is North Wake's instructions on how you are to sing. Not the worship team, North Wake. Sing lustily and with good courage, North Wake. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep. But lift up your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now, nor more ashamed of its being heard than when you sung the songs of Satan. Amen. 
kneeling. Psalm 95, verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. The Hebrew word for worship that's translated as worship in your Bibles basically means to lay prostrate, to kneel down. Kneeling is the physical expression of royalty. Honor is bestowed upon the one whom we kneel to. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in Matthew chapter 4, last thing Satan asked him, the last temptation was, bow down before me. Kneeling is a physical expression of worship and submission to God. Clapping and shouting. Psalm 47 Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. We shout and we give applause to things we delight in. When the nations of the world enter the stadium for the Olympics, we holler and we applaud. When the pastor says, May I present to you, Mr. and Mrs., we stand up and we shout and we clap. Sometimes more golf clap and sometimes shout. It all depends on what just happened. (laughs) When we perform a piece of music, if you do it well, usually it's applauded. If it's done really well, you stand and you applaud. You whistle, you shout. We should clap our hands to the Lord, both in applause and to the beat of the music that we, as we celebrate his goodness. After singing about myriads and myriads of human voices singing, our human voices should shout. We should give thanks to God for this promised hope that we have of the resurrection of the dead, of Christ's second return. Now, in our worship band celebrity culture that we live in, there has been given pause as to whether or not we should clap because it could be seen as applause given to the performance of the song rather than to the God that the song points to. I understand this concern very well. You ask anyone who's ever interviewed to be a part of the worship team. We talk about this. Uh, Let me encourage you that if your heart is so full of the grace and goodness of God that you want to applaud his kindness and his compassion and his goodness, then please clap, shout, And if you sense at all that I or anyone else on the worship team is receiving the applause as for ourselves, do us the honor of hitting us upside the head. (laughs) Maybe not be that brash. North Wake, I've been a part of you for over 10, well, close to 10 years now, over 10 years now. You've held me accountable and loved me well. And I have no doubt, and you should know this, that if you ever sense that about any of us, we would gladly take and want your rebuke or your word. Just let us know. Pride is a sneaky devil. Pride will steal you steal you of joy, and it will rob God of his glory and the honor that's due his name. It will do it in two ways. Either I'm going to steal it by actually thinking that you're applauding me, or you're going to steal it by not applauding, not clapping, because you're afraid that I'm receiving it. You give thanks to God. And I promise you, I'm going to do my very best for us to remember who it is that we are worshiping here.
standing in awe. Psalm 33, verse eight. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Have you, have you ever been sincerely awestruck? I mean, so amazed that your mind can't comprehend or process fast enough what your eyes or what your body is experiencing at the moment and you're frozen. I'll never forget the first time my feet ever stepped uh, on the soil of Auschwitz, Poland. I was a senior in high school. We were on a mission trip to Poland, sharing the gospel with people there. And we took a trip to Auschwitz. And there were train tracks. Just two sets of train tracks. Straight, straight as a plumb line that went through one gate and the two bobbed wire fences that in, enclosed the entire, this entire concentration camp. It was huge. One gate. Above that gate said in German, Arbeit macht frei. Work makes you free. And I stood there for, I don't know how long. I was, I couldn't process it all, you know. You hear the stories and you read it or you see it on TV. And when you're there, it becomes real. 1.3 million men, women, and children, innocent, lost their lives because of the backwards thinking of Satan. If you read the gospel, you read the book of Galatians like we did a couple years ago, you know that the idea that work makes you free is the biggest lie that's ever been told. Who adopted it but Hitler? Work's not what makes you free. Christ makes you free. But I was in fear. I stood there in front of that concentration camp in fear of what sin can do to our world. How it kills, steals, and destroys. And I was awestruck. I was awestruck, honestly, that entire day. It was very sobering. But if you look at this verse, it says, all the, Let all the earth fear the Lord. I've talked a lot about the goodness of God this morning, his love and his compassion, but you all know that he is loving and he is kind because he has spared us of what we deserve. Matthew chapter 10, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Our God has a righteous anger towards our sin that should cause us to fear him. It should, it should cause us to stand in awe. You look at every single theophany in the Bible. Theophany meaning anytime God comes and presents himself to anyone and you watch what the response is of the people, the first thing they do is not jump up and click their heels. They hide. They run. They, they're, they're scared. And they should be. It's been said over and over again that the good news is not good news without the bad news. And it is right for us to remember that it was in our sin the sin that Christ, that God condemns soul and body. It was in that sin that Christ died for us. And it's good for us to stand in awe, reverential fear of the holiness of God. To honor him in that way. We should never, 
We should never overemphasize certain attributes of God to the exclusion of others. It is good that we understand the love and mercy of God, but that is not all he is. He is also just and powerful, and his omniscience demands fear and respect. And often in our services, a song will finish, and there will be no quick musical transition or concluding prayer. We'll just stand in silence. You should know that's, that's, that's me standing in awe. And I think that's you. I think many of you are doing that as well. We should. Lifting up your hands. Psalm 134.2. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. Lifting up your hands can express so many different things. Praise. Just as when your team scores a touchdown, you pump your fists in the air, it it can represent submission, similar to kneeling. Dependence, often often I lift my hands when I'm thinking and singing about my dependence and need of God, just as a child lifts their arms to their father to be cared for and looked after. So lifting of hands is another great expression of our worship. Dancing. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. Yes, Baptists, God likes dancing. He loves it, particularly when it comes from a heart that is welled up with praise. And I've got good news. Wikipedia, Wikipedia defines dancing It says, definitions on what constitutes dance can depend on social and cultural norms and aesthetic, artistic, and moral sensibilities. So in other words, whatever it is that you're doing, that could be called dance. It pleases the Lord when we delight in him. And one expression of our delight that has been given to us is dancing. Now, I know that this can be particularly distracting to other brothers and sisters. One great example of this that I've been given here at North Wake is what I call our back row North Wakers. Contrary to back row Baptists, which has more of a negative connotation, back row North Wakers, I love. Now these people, these people sit on the back row Because they love to dance to the Lord. And the fact is, if you've watched me worship, sometimes you can't sit still. You can't. So what they do is they sit on the back row, and when their, uh, their hearts engage what we're singing and saying, and they can't sit still, they just move behind the back row, and they dance before the Lord. They do so out of consideration For you, it's not because there's more room back there, but they do so because they know it's particularly distracting. They've come to me with this, they're they're concerned, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this in a minute. They're concerned for their brothers and sisters. They don't want to be distraction. But it's sometimes when the joy, you know, you you can't sit still. Like what we've been studying, seeing, your bodies respond. So they sit back there. I love that. I love that about back, our back row North Wakers. They, they encourage me. And you should know, when I'm leading worship, my mind is in a lot of places. I'm thinking about what we're singing and what I'm saying. I'm thinking about uh, making sure you're understanding what we're singing and saying. I'm thinking about how the guitar is blending with the bass and if, if, the, if the drummer's playing in the wrong meter All those things are going through my mind. And sometimes I will open my eyes and I see you worshiping. And it just lifts my spirits and my soul and reminds me that God is being glorified and honored by you and that I can let those things, I can let those things die a little bit as long as they're not absolutely train wrecking what we're trying to do. 
So why don't we worship like this every single time we gather? I just gave you uh, seven different examples of physical, demonstrative worship from the Psalms. Why don't we worship like this every time we gather? Well, If we demand these things to take place when we worship, they become a law unto themselves. And they will steal the joy and the heart from which they're supposed to come. There is no biblical liturgy. There is no biblical order of worship. There is no biblical worship style. We read in Psalm 150, praise him with heart, praise him with cymbals, praise him with lute, praise him with, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. But that's not the exhaustive list of what we praise the Lord with. Uh, because God has not given us, given us a biblical liturgy, he, I, I honestly believe he did it so that we would not worship it. Because that's what we do, don't we? We make idols. It's, it's in our hearts. And if we are given a certain way, if, if, if God commanded you, raise your hands unto the Lord every time you gather, then the next question would be, Okay, is that palms out or palms in? 30 degree, 45. 90? No, God doesn't want that. He doesn't want all of us in here going, Yahweh, Yahweh, we love to shout your name. No, it becomes a law unto itself. God wants our hearts engaged, and for our bodies to respond from our hearts. It's from the inside out. Now, there are wrong reasons why we aren't expressive. There are wrong reasons why we aren't expressive. One is fear of man. We are more concerned about what people think about me than what they think about God. Fear of man will rob you of more than just physical expression. It will rob you of joy and life. What happens when God is taken off the throne of your heart and is replaced by a mortal man? Someone who is nowhere near worthy of your praise and your adoration. Someone whose heart is as fickle and as prone to sin as yours. So, so in order to please that guy, in order to please him, you're going to keep yourself from the joy of God. Now, I know that sounds ridiculous, just saying it like that. But it's a real issue for us, is it not? We really do. We really are concerned, lots of times, more about what people think about us than what they think about God. See, fear of man, it's, it's much more... It's much more serious than just physical expressiveness. Fear of man is idolatry. So what you're saying is that you're going, to, you're going to enter the congregation of God here at North Wake. You're going to come here on a Sunday morning. And you're going you're to whore yourself out to your neighbor? You're going to take God off the throne and put him there? Isaiah chapter 1. God tells his people, away from me with your, with your worship services and your praise. It's because their hearts were not obedient to him. It was... It was idolatry. They were coming into his courts for his praise and they were worshiping idols. I don't know what's worse. It'd be much better in my mind to just go out to the Ashrath pole and worship Baal. At least you're being honest about what you're worshiping. Fear of man is something we have to kill. We cannot let, cannot let God's glory be stolen because, because we're afraid of what others will think of us. Another, another wrong reason why we aren't expressive, there's an imbalanced emphasis on reverence and awe rather than praise and celebration. Now, I, as I've said before, reverence and standing in awe of God is something that we should do. 
We must do as we gather as a people. We should encourage attitudes of sobriety and solemnity. That's easier to write than to say. I will occasionally plan services where we'll bring the lights down, we'll flood the stage with candles, all in order to provoke a more reflective attitude. Um, But it's impossible to ignore the multitude of examples and commands in Scripture that emphasize celebration, passion, and delight. The fact is, is that God never intended for us to have to choose between reverence and awe and joy and celebration. We're to pursue both theological depth and passionate expression. It's an and, it's not an either or. One biblical reason, one good biblical reason not to be expressive, concern for your brother or sister. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. This, he's talking about gifts here. But he says, there are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. In other words, we won't understand each other. So with yourselves, since you are uh, eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in the building up of the church. So, they're withholding their gifts because it's unintelligible to others. Um, when, when Ricky Dawson uh, joined our worship team a couple years ago, it was obvious that he was from a different church background than us. Ricky and I are kindred spirits. During one of our first rehearsals together, he pulled me aside and he told me that if at any time I felt like his expressiveness during our worship had become more distracting than helpful for the building up of the church to let him know and he would conscientiously tone it back. His concern was for you. He did not want his worship to distract you from the God that he was worshiping. Now, don't misunderstand me. Nothing Ricky was doing was unbiblical. Nothing. But he was concerned for you. Now, you should know that I told Ricky uh, that he, he didn't have to tone anything back. And I don't think he has. And I think it's been good for us as a people uh, to be led in worship by him. I think we can learn a lot from him. It seems to me his worship looks a lot more like what we've been reading. Bob Bob Coughlin said it this way. He said, God is not honored by everything we feel will honor him if we're failing to consider the effects on others. Our worship is corporate. I'm encouraged by your worship. You're encouraged by mine. We build each other up. We edify one another. And it is good that we are mindful of each other. And it's good that we, uh, that we consider each other before ourselves. Some closing thoughts. Um, I don't think that too much God-delighting expression is our problem here at Northwake. If anything, I believe that our expression in worship, our expressions in worship are diluted compared to what we have seen in the scriptures. I cannot remember a singular time that myself or any of the elders have ever had to pull someone aside and speak to them about their expressiveness in worship as being distracting or disunifying. Bob Coughlin again says, some Christians repress their emotions as they sing. They fear feeling anything too strongly and think maturity means holding back. But the problem is emotionalism, not emotions. Emotionalism 
pursues feelings as an end as of themselves. It's wanting to feel something with no regard for how that feeling is produced or its ultimate purpose. Emotionalism can also view heightened emotions as the infallible sign of the presence of God. However, our deepest and strongest and purest affections should be reserved for God himself. And he gave us singing to help us express them. Half-hearted praise is an oxymoron. It doesn't make any sense. So what role does personality play in this? It plays a huge role. It's impossible for Larry Trotter to have Cresswellian worship. Just as it's impossible for Daniel Cresswell to have Trotterian worship. God made you unique. Your personality is meant to be a part of your expressiveness. I am much more verbose and extroverted than my wife is. But God does not want from Lindsay worship that looks like it's coming from me. He wants her heart. He wants her to engage him. Does that mean that the scriptures that encourage physical expressiveness only apply to the extroverted or expressive? No. You just saw all these commands. You can't ignore them. And you sure can't say, you can't say, I'm shouting in my heart. Find that in the Bible and then we can talk. No, David never shouted in his heart. But what it does mean is that it's going to look differently coming from Lindsay than it does coming from me. When Tennessee scores a touchdown, I jump up. Woo! And clap. Lindsay, yay! It looks different. It's her, it's her personality engaging. Again, Bob Coughlin says, we should not insist that these expressions, singing, dancing, raising of hands, we should not insist that these are cultural, cultural, or merely personality, and therefore can be ignored today, or that we can observe them spiritually, like I'm shouting in my heart. The crucial question is this, is there any physical expression of worship that God has given us in Scripture that I have never displayed? Or, to put it more positively, is there any physical expression of worship that pleases God that you ought to embrace and never have. God delighting worship begins with our hearts. It starts from the inside and it works its way out. It starts with your story. And if it's, it's how God in his mercy gave you faith and saved you. And if you believe this good news, the Bible tells us that you are a new creation. You've been born again into a living hope. If you've never embraced Christ as your Savior and as your God, that's, that's the prerequisite that has to happen first. It's impossible for you to have pure, everlasting joy and to be able to worship God without knowing His Son as your Savior. So it starts with your story. and It, it unfolds from there. Through his word, he has given us a beautiful, protected area in which we can exercise freedom in our worship. I want to encourage you, Northwake, to delight in the God of your salvation. Delight in him as he has directed you in his word to delight in him. Sing to him. Kneel before him. Shout and clap. Lift your hands. Stand in awe. Dance before him. The worship team is going to come. And uh, lead us in one last closing song. And I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to delight in your God today. 
And if, if you have not began your story with him, or perhaps you thought you did, but you're not sure, I want to encourage you to talk to one of your small group members, one of our pastors, our leaders and elders are always available at the end of the services to talk with you. Uh, today's the day. Today's the day where you can begin. Today can be your 1994. Hopefully with a different apparel. Would you stand with us? Let's worship our God.